Isaiah chapter 42. If you remember last time as we were finishing out chapter 41, God was declaring in those last few verses that he had looked and that there was no man and looked and that there was no counselor. And it seems that God's referencing how he was searching uh, for someone that he could use in particular in regards to his purposes, but yet was finding no one among humanity, but yet it's interesting that as chapter 42 begins, the Holy Spirit now through the prophet uh, directly addresses the Messiah and gives to us some references here prophetically regarding our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that as we come to chapter 42, now in these first few verses, as he says, behold my servant in whom I uphold. And uh, the my and the servant there should be capitalized, hopefully in your translation they are, because it helps distinctively identify that this is a reference to Jesus. Now, uh, let me just say, as you go through Isaiah's prophecy, you'll notice that this phrase, my servant, is used by God on numerous different occasions, and the context always defines for us who particularly it's referencing. There are times that God will use this phrase uh, regarding Cyrus. There are times that God uses this phrase, my servant, regarding Israel nationally, and there are times that God uses this phrase, my servant, regarding Jesus, the Messiah, prophetically. And we can tell from the context of the language here pretty clearly in this section that this is a reference to Christ. We also know that from the New Testament in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Matthew there under the inspiration of the Spirit directly quotes uh, some of these verses in the early part of Isaiah chapter 42, and he directly quotes them in reference to Jesus uh, in the gospel record in the New Testament. So we don't have to question who this is referencing here, and God now seems to want to put our focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that we should fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, and that we should consider him. And so this word here, behold, as the chapter opens, the idea to behold means to consider, to call attention to, to contemplate, to think about. And I think it is just a really good thing sometimes to just maybe get our eyes off of what's happening in the world, to get our eyes off of what's maybe even going on in our own life. And there is just something very valuable at times about just beholding the beauty of the Lord, focusing upon Him and just gazing upon the wonderful things about Him, His attributes, His nature. It just does something wonderful, and I believe, quite honestly, something very therapeutic for the human soul, for the human mind, because a lot of the other things that we can put our attention on and that we're beholding or we're focusing on or we're even fixating on, whether it's, again, things we're tracking in the news or what's going on with the economy or our retirement plans or our relationships or our dynamics or even just what's going on in our own life, those things can really drive us a lot of times into a really dark place mentally and emotionally. And so I'm thankful that God's word tells us both Old Testament and New Testament times, listen, behold the Lord, focus on him, think upon him a little bit. And this is what the prophet here is doing for us as we come into chapter 42. He says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for the truth and he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Now, a number of different things are drawn to our attention here regarding the Messiah, regarding Jesus. These are prophetic statements about him. It's interesting that the first thing that God calls us by the Spirit of God here in the record to put our attention upon regarding Jesus Christ is God wants us to be reminded of the fact that he's mainly recognized, interesting, as a servant. He says of Jesus, behold, he's my servant. Now, was Jesus 
lured? Was he king? Was he powerful? I mean, was he a great teacher? Absolutely. All the other, was he a miracle worker? All the other things we could have put in there. But the thing that the Spirit of God wants to draw our attention to regarding the ministry of Jesus when he came in his first coming as the Messiah in his humanity is that he would be characterized as a servant. And Jesus would often draw this to our attention as well. He would speak of how the greatest among you is the servant of all. He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life ultimately in the greatest act of servitude as a ransom for many. And so as he references Jesus, he wants us to see that Jesus was mainly recognized in his first coming as a servant. That's what characterized our Lord. He was incredibly great, incredibly powerful, but he was a servant king. He was a servant leader, and he came to minister to people. We see Jesus in the greatest displays of his love, John 13, washing the disciples' feet. Again, humble servitude, and Jesus came foremost to serve God's purposes. He calls him my servant, and that's what Jesus came for. He was an extension of of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he was the extension of divinity as he came into earth as a man, and he fulfilled and served the purposes of God on our behalf, and we were the recipients of his humble servanthood in all that he did. And as he functioned as a servant, notice it says that the Father upheld him, my servant whom I uphold. And though Jesus came and he humbled himself and he functioned as a servant and to a degree he set aside many of his privileges and the wonderful things he had reigning on a throne there with the Father in heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords, he set so much of that aside. Philippians 2 tells us he came in the likeness of man like a servant to live among us, but the Father upheld him because of this approach he took of humble servanthood he also calls Jesus in verse 1, my elect one. The idea is my chosen one. So Jesus was the chosen one of the Father who was sent as the Savior for the world, the appointed Messiah who came into the world. And the Father says of Jesus, he is my elect one in whom my soul delights. The idea is who my soul finds great pleasure or enjoyment or satisfaction. And of course, this reminds us of Remember Jesus, when he was baptized, it tells us that as he was being baptized, it says the heavens parted. Remember, it says the spirit came down upon Christ and rested upon him as, as a dove. The spirit descended upon him. And it says that the voice came from heaven, the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the father spoke of how Jesus, as his son, his chosen one, as his servant on the earth, was the one who brought his soul great delight. And again, always important to remember, when Jesus was being baptized at that point, and the father said of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, the idea is past tense, already well pleased with, Jesus had not preached one sermon yet that we're aware of. His public ministry had not began. He hadn't performed one miracle. So the father was speaking of the pleasure of his son, not because of what he accomplished in ministry, not because of the healings or the sermons or the teachings or any other things. What he was describing was the pleasure of his son in the way that he functioned for, you might say, the better part of his life as a man the first 30 years as he just walked in fellowship with the father in heaven. And he did those things that pleased the Father. He said those things that pleased the Father. And Jesus' life brought great pleasure to the Father in all that he said and he did because he lived in harmony with his Father and in fellowship. And even before the public ministry began, in those, if you would, quiet years, as he just functioned, you might say, under the radar in relative obscurity as a Jewish man living among Nazareth and his family there functioning in some way as a builder or a carpenter, but everything he did, he did in right relationship with his father. He lived a righteous life, and only those last three and a half years as the Spirit came upon him did his public ministry really blossom, but he brought great delight to the heart of the father without doing all those things that often we may think were the things that really would have pleased God the most, and I'm not diminishing that the ministry of Christ pleased the father, 
But I say that as an encouragement to you to recognize that sometimes the things that are done in your Christian life that are, seem like they're mundane and in relative obscurity, uh, how you serve the Lord in your job and in your household and the private personal aspects of your life, those things can bring great delight and pleasure to the Father. Again, the Bible tells us, I delight to do your will, O Lord, and we should delight to do the will of the Lord in every aspect of our life and know that as we serve Jesus in the personal, private ways of our life, that delights the heart of God. That pleases God just as much as any aspects of ministry that we do. Great to do those things as well, but let us never forget that God is pleased with all those things, just the simple acts of servanthood that we display and notice, how did he do those things? Well, it tells us, verse 1 going on, that God declared, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice. The idea is he will bring forth what is right, not only to the Jews. He went to the Jews first. We talked about that Sunday. But ultimately, to all the world, even to the Gentile nations. Again, notice the Holy Spirit draws our attention to the fact that Jesus' life brought pleasure to the Father and his ministry was effective. And the reason that his ministry was effective is Jesus' ministry as a man was performed in the power of the Spirit's enabling. It tells us here that God put his Spirit upon Jesus. And the idea there is the Spirit of God being upon him with anointing the enabling power of the Spirit, we often refer to this as the, the baptism of the Spirit, the Spirit being upon, resting upon a person's life. Uh, and Jesus himself served in the power of the Spirit as the Spirit was upon his life. He was anointed for his public ministry, and he did his ministry in the power of the Spirit's enablement. And if Jesus did that, how much more do you and I, if we're going to be effective in serving the Lord, need to recognize that yes, we need to be a servant. Yes, we need to seek to do what pleases the Father, but we have to realize we can't do those things in our own human strength or in religious formality, but that we need the power of the Spirit to be upon our lives. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus speaks there of three different relationships that we can have with the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God can be with us, para, the Greek is, that he can be you know, with us, alongside of us, and he is with us even before we're saved. Before we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is with us, convicting us of sin, trying to convince us that we need Jesus Christ as Savior, that we should follow him as Lord. He's with us, sending Christians into our path, and he's orchestrating everything he can as he's with us, trying to bring us into a relationship with Christ. And then once we receive Jesus Christ at that moment of salvation, Jesus said in John's gospel, and the Holy Spirit also will be in you. And the, the Greek is E-N, I-N in the English. The idea is to be indwelling or to enter into. And that's the Christian experience, that when you receive Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God enters inside of you, and he now indwells you. He remains within you, and he is within the believer, dwelling there helping you in your Christian life, helping you in your relationship with God, convicting you, revealing things to you, leading and guiding you. So the Spirit is with us. He's within us or in us or indwelling us once we're saved. But the Bible also speaks using this other preposition. It's often translated into English, upon. And in the Greek, it's the word api. It's a totally different Greek preposition, which speaks of the Holy Spirit coming upon or overflowing, resting upon with his power, upon the life of one of the Lord's servants to enable us for ministry. Jesus spoke of this where in Acts chapter 1, he said, you shall receive power, dunamis, a dynamic, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses, he said, Jerusalem, Judea, and the othermost parts of the world. And so the Bible does speak of this reality of how, again, the Bible declares how John baptized with water, but it says that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so, again, Jesus even used that term, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit himself, in referencing to this. And we see even our Lord had the Spirit upon him for his ministry. And as you serve the Lord, as you want to try and witness effectively, as you want to be a, a strong testimony for the Lord, uh, don't try and do that in your own strength. Do that in the power of the Spirit resting upon you. And we see even of Jesus and his human ministry the Spirit was upon him. That's what made him effective. Now, describing what his ministry was like, verse 2 and 3 tell us 
how Jesus operated, again, as a servant, pleasing the Father, and with the dynamic of the Holy Spirit's power upon his life, enabling him, notice, great love, great boldness, all the power of the Spirit, but it says of his ministry, verse 2, that he will not cry out, the idea is drawing attention to oneself, nor raise his voice in the street, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now, what this is describing here is how Jesus was incredibly humble and gentle in his style of ministry. Jesus was not, if you look at his ministry, he was not overbearing. Jesus was not demanding. Jesus was not, we might say, flashy or forceful, right? Jesus was not, uh, you know, publicly trying to draw attention to himself. He was not out in the streets trying to draw up attention to, you know, you know, draw up a bunch of admiration from people. We look at Jesus's ministry. Jesus did not seek publicity. Jesus was not advertising himself, trying to draw attention to himself. In fact, if you look at the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, you cannot help but to notice that oftentimes he actually was doing things quite the opposite. He would do things incredibly, but he often would do them quite quietly. Many a times, right, he would do a miracle and he would say, don't tell anyone that I've done this. He just wanted to help the person. He would demonstrate the power of God. But it wasn't about, now, now make sure that gets on social media quick. Now, 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 make sure lots of people know about this. Let's, you know, it, Jesus was never seeking attention, publicity. If anything, he was ministering quietly and humbly, and he sought, if anything, just to always do what? Give glory to the Father. He would always give glory to the Father instead of drawing glory and drawing attention to himself. Again, very different than many of the ways we see people ministering today. In many ways we see people, when they say they're operating in the Spirit's power, a lot of what's going on is very drawing attention to themselves quite a bit. And it's operating in a way where supposedly as they operate in the Spirit's power, they can't operate in the Spirit's power, but yet attention not be drawn to themselves, to where everybody's riveted by their behavior or their style or their approach or the way that they do it. And Jesus was operating in the purest sense in the power of the Spirit, and yet he was not crying out, drawing attention, again, garnering people's eyes to be upon him or seeking to drum up attention upon himself. It says he was ministering very gently, very humbly. And again, the idea here as well in the language, when you look at it, when it says that he did not raise his voice or cry out, the implication there as well is also indicating, as I said, that Jesus wasn't overly domineering. He wasn't forceful. He wasn't someone who was speaking in a way whereby he was kind of being domineering in the way that he communicated. He didn't operate, as I said, like a spiritual celebrity or salesman, but he also did not operate like a spiritual bulldozer. And Jesus was not domineering. He didn't have to raise his voice or yell or shout or change his voice. He didn't have a speaking voice and a preaching voice. I've never quite understood that myself. It's always been a little bit of a quandary to each his own, but I've never understood the concept of why when someone preaches or teaches, their voice becomes different than when they speak to people. As if somehow there's, there, again, Jesus spoke in the power of the Spirit, and there was not this kind of domineering, kind of like, you know, forcing people to comply kind of a thing, shouting at them, kind of garnering up, a, you know, doing what he had to do, like a bulldozer with persuasion to get people to submit or convince or receive Christ. It was quite the opposite, humbly, quietly, right? The book of Proverbs tells us that a gentle tongue can break a bone. And see, Jesus would speak so humbly, so lovingly, but yet, is it not true, the power of his words were incredible over people's lives. He would just say to people, follow me. And they would leave everything in their life behind and have a life transformation and follow him. And why was that so powerful? Because of the Spirit's anointing. It wasn't because of how loud he said it or how forceful he was or domineering he was in the way that he communicated. He would just, without crying out, speak. And it was the anointing of the Spirit that brought the breakthrough and spoke to people's hearts tremendously. Verse 3 also says of Jesus in his earthly ministry when he came that a bruised reed 
he would not break. Now, we have reeds here. We live in a sure region. You know, reeds are not typically real strong things. They're rather frail. They're easily broken, even just by kind of being pushed aside if you're trying to move through a marsh area or whatever here. And this is a reference to the same kind of idea with reeds. And so as he describes here how a bruised reed, one that's been damaged, that's been uh, broken, if you would, and bent over, uh, that Jesus was very gentle with lives that were broken, with lives that were wounded, with lives that were hurting. Jesus was very tender in helping wounded people. Jesus was very gentle with assisting and trying to heal lives that were hurting and broken and wounded. That was the heart of Jesus. That was the style of his ministry. And again, we should have that same heart as we deal with the lives of people around us. There are people who are bruised and broken and who are hurting and wounded. And the nature of Jesus would be to make us be very gentle with them to try and help heal and to do what we can to assist them in the midst of their brokenness and their pain. He says as well also of Jesus that a smoking flax he will not quench. Now, the smoking flax is a picture of the oil lamp with the wick that would you know, have the oil on it, and as the oil would burn out, then the wick would kind of just be smoking, and the idea there is like a dying oil lamp, something that basically is dying out, and it has basically little to no fuel left whatsoever, and the picture here is rather than just going up and just, you know, squeezing the wick and just finishing it off, well, this looks like it's about dead anyway, so we might as well just, you know, just put it out and be done with it, Jesus would do the opposite. Jesus would seek to work in a way being patient with those who were fizzling out, you might say, and he sought to renew them. When he saw a life that was faltering or failing or was kind of growing weak and the light was growing dim and there was little oil left in the lamp and that life was, was failing and faltering, Jesus' heart was to come along and to do whatever he could to fan it back into flame to restore back the fire, to bring back what was needed to revive the light once again, to revive the work spiritually. And boy, I don't know about you, I'm really grateful because there are times that our spiritual life can kind of feel like it's fizzling out or like we're fainting spiritually. And how wonderful that Jesus has a patient endurance where he comes and he brings renewal to our spiritual lives. And he's able to fan that fire for the Lord back into flame as it says, he brings forth justice for the truth. And I love verse 4's description of Jesus where it tells us of our Lord, he will not fail. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Because I do and you do. <laughs> but he will never fail. He will not fail. And even better, he, nor will he be discouraged until, notice, he's established justice, brought about what's right in the earth. The idea is the culmination of the fullness of his ministry from the first day that he was supernaturally conceived miraculously in the womb of the Virgin Mary all the way till the time when he returns back in his second coming and through the end of his millennial reign as he does the full circle, if you would, the complete closure of his ministry until he's established justice in the earth. Jesus will not fail and he'll never become discouraged. What a wonderful thing to know about our Lord. How wonderful that Jesus never fails in fulfilling his mission or his purpose. He remains faithful to complete things. And so you know what that means? That is the spirit of the Lord is at work in my life and in your life. Because as Christians, the Bible tells us that Christ is in us. His spirit indwells us now. These should be things that characterize our lives as well. I know in our humanity we have weaknesses, but Jesus wants us to reflect him in the sense that we would be people that are faithful, that follow through, that carry things out to completion. Jesus never failed. Now, certainly we do from time to time, but thank goodness, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself and that he never fails. And the thing I find tremendous encouragement in, perhaps you can't relate, but how wonderful that Jesus never becomes discouraged. So as Jesus looks at what's going on in your life, or as he looks what's going on in a situation, or as he assesses something that's transpiring, he never gets discouraged over it. Now, that's the exact opposite for me. I get discouraged all the time. <laughs> I look at my life, and I get very discouraged at times. 
I look at what's going on in my life or situations or the fruit of ministry or the outcomes of things, and I so easily become discouraged. And how wonderful that Jesus looks and he says, I'm not discouraged. You may be discouraged, but I'm not discouraged because I know what I can do. And sometimes it's just a matter of that he measures things different than we do. Sometimes we're extremely discouraged where we're at in our Christian walk or Christian progression, and we're thinking, oh, man, I'm such a failure. I'm so discouraged. I'm such a... And, and Jesus may be going, really? Do you remember what you were like six months ago? Do you remember what you were like when you first got saved? And Jesus looks sometimes and he says, I'm not discouraged at all because the Bible says that we can be confident in this very thing. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And sometimes we're incredibly discouraged because we have too high maybe even of expectations for where we should be spiritually or, you know, what's going on and how wonderful Jesus never fails. He's never discouraged. He's always hopeful because he knows what his potential is despite what ours is. And he can always intervene and bring to pass whatever he needs. Verse 5 then goes on to say, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So Isaiah speaks of the creative power of God, that God is greater than all things. Again, the creator is always much greater than whatever it is that it created. And so he speaks here now of the creative power of God. The greatness of God is the one who created the heavens, stretched out uh, and spread forth the earth and everything that exists in existence. And then he speaks of the greatest crown of God's creation, which is what? Human beings, right? God created all beings, if you would, animals, but the, the, the object of God's greatest treasure in his creation is you and I because we were created in his image and likeness. And it seems that as he's speaking of the creative power of God, he's describing that in verse 5 here when he says that he is the God, the creator God, who gives breath to all people, he says, who are on the earth and spirit to those who walk in it. Again, this reminds us of Genesis chapter 2. Remember, it tells us in the creative uh, act of God with humanity. It says that God created Adam from the dust of the earth, and it says he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. So amazing to think. God takes what's there on the ground, the same elements that make up common dirt or dust on the earth. It's amazing what God can do with just some sticky clay. It's phenomenal, God's creative power. And God takes dirt and he fashions it and orchestrates this incredible complex human body that we have as, as human beings. And then God breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. The Hebrew is literally the breath of lives because God saw from Adam that he would then perpetuate the human race all the way down through humanity. And God breathes into Adam and this body that's created so incredibly all of a sudden now comes alive and becomes animated as God puts breath into Adam's body. And look, Daniel chapter 5 tells us, as there Daniel is speaking and reproving at that time, the pride of the leader of, of the empire. He says, the God, Daniel 5, he says, the God who holds your breath in his hands, you've not humbled yourself before him. And again, just humbling this world empire, this, this ruler of a world empire saying to him, listen, <laughs> You may think you're really special, but you do realize that your very breath is in the hand of God. And again, when we realize this reality, how humbling it is to recognize how frail we are, that the involuntary aspects of our life, God breathes life out, he gives us our life, he creates us, and then literally, he's the one who sustains our life. All the involuntary acts of a human existence, our heart continuing to beat, every breath that we take, he says every breath is in God's hand. In other words, he grants every single breath. And when he's ready, and only when he's ready, he finally shuts that down in every human life. But to realize that's how dependent we are upon God, that he's controlling all those things, even our inward spirit to those who walk on the earth, that is, the inward spirit refers to the immaterial part of us, our personality, 
our, our capabilities, you might say, our aptitudes, our ability to reason, the spirit of man, everything that we have, none of that is of our doing. It's the way that God created us. God gave us those aptitudes. God gave us those capacities to reason, the abilities to be able to do things, our intelligence, our personalities, all given to us by God. Verse 6, he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. Now, again here, he's speaking directly at this point to the Messiah. Again, the word you in my translation is capitalized. There's another indication. Again, he's talking to the Messiah here. This is the Father communicating to Jesus, to the Messiah prophetically. I have called you in righteousness, and Jesus did come and live out the perfect righteous life that humanity could never live as a sinful people. He did that on our behalf. And will hold your hand. Again, beautiful picture of the father and son there, the father holding his son's hand as he journeyed through his earthly existence, avoiding sin, fulfilling his redemptive ministry. And I will keep you, he says to his son, and give you, beautifully, as a covenant to the people and a light to the Gentiles. Interesting, the Father says to Jesus, I will give you, personally you, as a covenant to the people. Remember when Jesus was instituting communion, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of sins. And again, through Jesus and his life, his substitutional death, his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven, God instituted a new covenant based upon the finished completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The old covenant was based upon the law and the sacrificial system. Jeremiah will tell us that God had predicted that he would bring a new covenant, and that new covenant came through Jesus. And that whole covenant of God's faithfulness and commitment to finish the work in our lives, to assure us we're going to get to heaven, to know that our sins are forgiven, that whole covenant is based upon a person. That covenant is all tied up in Jesus. And here the Father says to the Son, I will give you as a covenant to the people. Jesus was the assurance of the covenant that God gives to us of forgiveness and the assurance that he will bring us to heaven because he was the light unto the Gentile nations. And then speaking again of Jesus' ministry in the New Testament, quotes some of these statements as well. And this speaks to us clearly of the ministry of Christ. We know it. To open blind eyes... One of the miracles Jesus did more than anything else in the Gospels, if you look at his miracles, predominantly one of the main things he did was give sight to the blind. And no doubt one of the biggest reasons for that was because it spoke very picturesquely in a way signifying what he would do spiritually, that he would open the eyes of people spiritually so that they could see clearly. To bring prisoners, it says, out from the prison, Jesus would liberate and set people free from the shackles of sin and the imprisonment of their sinful lifestyles and spiritual imprisonment to Satan controlling and ruling over their lives. To those who would sit in darkness from the prison house, he would call people out of darkness, the idea is out of the dungeon, to bring them into the light of living for Christ. He says, verse 8, and I am the Lord, Yahweh, that's that Hebrew tetragrammaton, that is, God says, my name and my glory, God declares, I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Notice, God is very exclusive in regards to who he will allow to have credit for anything that happens of spiritual matters. God says here, I am the Lord, that's my name. None of the other false gods, none of the other religious leaders deserve the credit here. The idea is my glory and my praise, God says, I will not give to another. You know, God does not take very lightly when human beings stand up and take the applause that God deserves for things. God is not very pleased when someone is willing to take glory or to receive praise for themselves on behalf of what God has done through their life. That's why Paul says in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in fact, I just was reading it recently in my devotionals where he talks about God has chosen the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world. And he literally says, so that no flesh would glory in God's presence. And the idea is that God even purposely 
He even tries to work in a manner where at times he will select weakness and, you know, lack of experience and ability and capability and all that to try and make it as obvious as possible to the person he's using as the instrument, as well as to everyone else, that had to be God. Because I know that person, or I know myself, and, and I know that I don't have anything to bring to the table. This isn't because of this great education, or these skills that I have, or this great training, or my experience, or my expertise, that a person would know. No, the only reason why is because I made myself available and the spirit of the Lord was upon my life and through his power and enablement, I was able to accomplish what I did and therefore to God be all the glory. I'm not taking bows for God. I'm not taking credit for God. I'm not gonna take praise or honor that belongs to him. He's the one that's glorified. And again, these are very vital and important verses that we should all remember, particularly when we serve the Lord or God uses us in some way. I love how Paul says in the New Testament, I will not dare to boast of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, Paul tells the Romans. And just again, that recognition, again, I love the, the, the heart of God expressed here. He makes it very clear to us, my glory says, I do not want to give it to another. Beware if you see people who seem to enjoy to serve the Lord, but they also seem to enjoy the credit and the attention and the accolades and the applause. There's something very, very unhealthy going on there when you see that. And beware of your own flesh at times enjoying that. We can all be carnal in that way, but God's very clear how he feels about such. Verse 9, he says, behold, the former things, they've come to pass. In other words, what God's already declared, he's brought to pass. And new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So notice God, again, here he's demonstrating how he is unique He's unlike all the idols, the false gods of that day. And as we saw before in our prior chapters, again, God comes back to this idea that because he dwells outside of the constraint of time in the physical realm, he's outside of the physical realm of the time continuum, he's able to declare things before they ever happen. That's what predictive prophecy is. Not all prophecy is predictive, but God says here, there are new things that are going to, look what he says, new things, verse 9, that are going to spring forth. And God says, I tell you before they come to pass. I can reveal them to you. I can inform you of something that's going to come to pass. Sometimes God will inform and give us advance notice, whether it's prophecy in the word of God, which he's giving to us a ton of, which is what sets this book apart from any other religious holy book that God tells us things before they ever happen, and he's always brought to pass everything he says, and he always will continue to do that. We can trust that's the reliability of the word of God and of our God. But sometimes I think the Lord will on occasion perhaps give us a preemptive awareness. He may reveal to us something that's going to spring forth and tell us before it comes to pass, whether it's to prepare us, whether it's to get us praying, or whether it's to just allow us to know that when it does come to pass, that it is of the Lord, because he told us before it happened. And sometimes God will do that. We'll see in chapter 43, God will make reference to this as well, saying, forget the former things. God says, there are new things coming, uh, and, and be ready for those new things before they spring forth. Here he declares how that would happen. Now, what's the response of that? Well, God says, this is what the response should be. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. In other words, appreciatively, rejoicing expressing glory and praise and worship to him for who he is and what he does. Sing to the Lord a new song. Praise his name from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands. And again, that's often a phrase used for the nations, not just the coastlands as far as land and water, beach areas. And you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, the villages that Kedar inhabits, that would be in an area oftentimes in the West Bank, almost where there would be some Gentiles there as well uh, as Jews. And then he goes to say, and let the inhabitants of Selah sing. And that would be the area in Jordan where we often know as today the rock city of Petra, where many believe, and we'll talk about this a little bit Sunday, where the Jews may flee to for a time of protection uh, when the Antichrist unleashes his anger towards them. So now he's talking about not only Jews, but Gentiles as well, all nations, shouting from the top of the mountains, verse 12, 
Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Now, isn't that an interesting tie together? Verse 8, God says, my glory I will not give to another. God says, I'm not sharing my glory with anyone. I will not share my glory. And now the Holy Spirit tells us, let us give glory to the Lord. <laughs> that we should give him proper glory. We should give him proper praise and be thankful to him when he does the awesome things that he does. Now, verse 13, you can tell a shift happens because look at the language and how it changes. He says, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a, I have this underlined, man of war. He shall cry out. Yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail. The idea is conquer against his enemies. Now, you notice the complete contrast from the first few verses in the chapter, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Jesus in his first coming he will not cry out. He will be gentle. He's not domineering. He's not forceful. He's a humble servant. You can tell now, verse 13, this is now reflecting on the ministry of Christ in his second coming. When he comes back as a glorified warrior king, and now he shall go forth like a mighty man with zeal, like a man of war, a warrior king. And now it says he will cry out. The idea is his voice will be heard. <laughs> He's going to make sure everyone hears his voice as he declares his victory, the word of God coming back to throw overthrow his enemies and prevailing against them. Speaking of the second coming of Christ there in verse 13, you notice how the Holy Spirit at times will shift our view back and forth. And this was why sometimes the Jews had difficulty because there were these two projections in the Old Testament of this humble suffering servant and then this mighty glorified warrior king, a man of war that would overthrow and prevail against enemies. And so sometimes not seeing the two comings of Christ, uh, this would cause conflict for them in trying to put the pieces together. We understand the two comings of the Lord, and it makes sense to us. Verse 14, the Lord then speaks in the first person, describing again when he would no longer restrain himself. He says now, first person, I have held my peace a long time. Now, you never want God to say that, certainly to you. I've held my peace long enough, God says. <laughs> I have been still, and I have restrained myself. And boy, does God have some restraint, if we really think about that. I wonder if God is looking upon the earth at this present time as days are waxing worse and worse, as is in the days of the Noah, the Bible says, so shall be coming the Son of Man. And you have to wonder if to some degree God is not thinking these words today. I have held my peace a long time, and I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor and pant and gasp at once. In the picture there, metaphorically, a woman in labor, once those labor pains start, ain't nobody stopping it. No one is going to stop the process once it begins. And God says, I've restrained myself long enough. And now I am going to act, and nothing will stop it. No one will restrain it. It will come to pass. He says, verse 15, I will lay waste the mountains and the hills, dry up their vegetation, make their rivers coastlands, and dry up the pools. Verse 16, he then describes the bringing back of his people. And this is particularly a reference probably to the Jews coming back after the captivity in Babylon. As he says of them, of his people, I will bring the blind by a way they did not know, and I will lead them in paths they have not known. The idea is he will guide his people through pathways they had never gone through before. And though they had no experience, God knew the way. Though they had never been that way before, that was no problem with God. And you know, sometimes we think, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've never been this way before. I've never been on this journey before. I've never been on this path before. But God has many times. And that doesn't hinder him. And God said of his people, as they would be coming back from Babylon, back to the homeland, I will lead them on paths they've not known. I will make darkness become light before them. God would enlighten their path. And crooked places, God would make straight. These things, God declares, I will do for them and not forsake them. God was not going to abandon them. He said, I will get you to where you need to be as he would guide his people. Now, verse 17, God turns and the idea seems to be a contrast, a rebuke 
to those who would not follow God. The idea here is, but they shall be turned back and greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, the idea is instead of God, who say to the molded images, you are our gods. So God says to those who are my people and who follow me, God says, I will make crooked things straight for you. When you don't know where you're going, I'll enlighten your path. I'll give you light in the midst of your dark situations so that you know the way to go. And I will not abandon you, God says in the prior verse. And I will do these things to get you to your destination. But then God says to those who worship false idols and other things that are dead and worthless, God says they will find that they end up being turned back and being ashamed and being stuck in a situation that arrives ultimately nowhere again because there is no guidance when we're not looking to the Lord who's the only one who can truly guide our lives successfully. Now, verse 18, he then speaks here, and you'll notice here's this phrase, my servant again, and here he's speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see who is blind but my servant. Now, of course, he's not speaking of Christ there. He's speaking now of Israel as his servant, his chosen people that were raised up to be witnesses for God among the Gentile nations. They became the servant of God. We've seen this. He's going to just make that very clear as the language goes on here in the chapter ahead. Who is blind but my servant Israel, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? And then he describes their condition of spiritual blindness and not being open to hear and listen to the voice of God by saying, verse 20, seeing many things, but you do not observe. The idea is they were seeing things, but not observing in the sense that though they saw what was clear and right, they were failing to respond. They were not responding to act upon what God was showing them. And boy, that's an indication of spiritual blindness and shutting our ears to the Lord when God at times will let us see things, but then we don't respond to what God's showing us. And we can never fault God because God is always faithful to show us things. When we do not respond correctly, it's not because God didn't show us, it's because God showed us, but we did not act in response to what God showed to us. So he says, the people were seeing many things, but they weren't observing, obeying obediently, opening the ears, but God said of his people Israel, but they do not hear. The idea is they were failing to be responsive to what they heard from God. So what God showed them, they weren't acting upon. What God was telling them and what they were hearing, they, they were failing to listen. In other words, you know, we often talk about how sometimes things go in one ear and out the other, and this is the idea. If someone can hear the voice of the Lord, but harden their heart and shut their ear off. And, and so this is why the Bible tells us, listen, if you hear the voice of the Lord, don't harden your heart. Because this is a very dangerous thing when we don't respond, though he opens our ears and opens our eyes to things, and Israel sadly refused to respond, and it caused them great problems because of that, as it does all of our lives. Verse 21, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake, and he will exalt the law, that is the standard, and make it honorable. Again, making it evident, the standard was fine. It wasn't a problem on God's end. But this people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes and hidden in prison houses. They are for prey and no one delivers them for plunder and no one says restore. And the picture there in verse 22 is the result of ignoring God. Because they were ignoring God, they weren't responding to what God let them see and showed them. Because they weren't listening to what God was telling them, they were hearing the truth, but they weren't listening to it. They, they heard it. But it's one thing to hear something, it's another thing to actually listen and respond to it. And they were hearing the truth, but they weren't listening. They were seeing what God was showing them, but they weren't acting upon it. And as the result of that, look what ended up happening, ignoring God. They ended up finding themselves robbed, ripped off the ideas. Their, their life was suffering loss. They were becoming ensnared. They were finding themselves just in really dark and difficult places. And that's always the outcome 
life becomes robbed and in a dark place when we start to ignore God. Verse 23 says, who among you will give ear to this? In other words, who's willing to listen? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? In other words, take the lesson of this. Who gave Jacob, notice, you could tell who he's referring to here, who gave Jacob, Israel, for plunder? And Israel to the robbers. In other words, they're in this condition suffering. How did this happen? Why are they struggling in this way? Who turned them over? God has no problem. Verse 24, was it not the Lord? He against whom we have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law, his word. So God says, why have their lives become ripped off? Why are they in dark places, stuck in holes and pits and, and in a place that, that they're struggling? And God says, for one reason, they're under my discipline. They ignored me. And because they ignored me, God says, yes, I was the one against whom they have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways. What's the opposite of that? They were walking in their ways. God said, they won't walk in my ways, they're walking in their ways. And that always brings problems into our lives. When we walk in our ways instead of God's ways, and when we're not obedient to God's law or God's word, but obedient to our desires, our preferences, our ideas, that always brings problems. Verse 25, he concludes the chapter saying, therefore he has poured on him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle it has set him on fire all around. The idea is things are burning up because of the problems. And this is sad the way this concludes. Yet he did not know and it burned him. In other words, he got burnt. Got burnt. Yet, this phrase, I have it underlined, he did not take it to heart. The idea there, we might say, they didn't learn their lesson. God says, these things happened, they got burnt in the fire, and nobody likes that, right? But God says, if you ignore me, you make a mistake, you fail, you suffer consequences. God says, please, at least take it to heart. Learn your lesson so you don't repeat the same process again, right? I mean, that, that's the thing that matters to, to a, a father. You know, you touch the hot stove, God says, okay, you got burnt. Let's not do that again. Let's not, let's, uh, the old adage, stop playing with the matches. You burnt your finger, but let's not burn the whole house down, right? And this is what God was saying here, that the, the sadness in God's heart is he says, the people did not take it to heart. They didn't learn their lesson. Boy, that is the thing that we want to pay attention to. When we make mistakes, when we fail spiritually, Thanks be to God, especially through Christ. There's forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us, forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the thing we want to do is we want to take to heart the lesson, learn from it, and not repeat the same mistake again. That's the most valuable part in the midst of those journeys. Well, let's conclude there for this evening. Let's stand.